the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Let me read something to you. Pay very close attention, if you would, please. Class, in session. Is that loud enough? There you go. The rapid growth of the world's population over the last 100 years results from a difference between the rate of birth and the rate of death. The human population will increase by 1 billion people in the next decade. This is like adding the whole population of China to the world's population. The growth in human population around the world affects all people through its impact on the economy and environment. The current rate of population growth is now a significant burden to human well-being. Understanding the factors which affect population growth patterns can help us plan for the future. This unit consists of core knowledge about the causes and consequences of overpopulation, lesson plans, teacher resources, student reading list, and a list of speakers. Although this unit is primarily intended for students in grades 5 through 8, teachers in both elementary and high school can use this unit to explore key ideas and concepts about the population explosion. Close quote. Now, that is a foreword from a teacher's instruction handbook in use in American public schools today. What of this matter of modern-day overpopulation? Is it fact, or is it largely fiction? And how much of the new green is actually just the old red repackaged? With some answers, we're joined now by Stephen Mosher. He is president of the Population Research Institute, a nonprofit research group whose goals are to expose the myth of overpopulation, to expose human rights abuses committed in population control programs, and to make the case that people are the world's greatest resource. Stephen, a delight to have you on the program. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Let's talk first about some of this agenda. You heard what I had to read from the foreword of this uh, teacher's handbook, which sounds like the whole notion of overpopulation, its impact on the globe and sustainability is sort of a fait accompli. And so let's begin teaching our kids these lessons at a very early age. What say ye? Well, I say that it sounds like it was written by my former colleague at Stanford University, uh, Professor Paul Ehrlich. In 1968, and uh, of course, it sounds as if whoever wrote it hadn't learned anything else in the meantime, because it is wrong, wrong, wrong. It is wrong that the world's population is going to add a billion people in the next few years. Population growth rates are slowing down. More than half the countries of the world are now having too few people, not too many. Uh, And the rest of the world, China's one-child policy, India's two-child policy, is rapidly following suit. And the idea we should reduce the number of people on the planet to make ourselves better off it is total nonsense because we need more creative human intelligences at work, not fewer. And if you want to visit the future of depopulation, go to Japan today, where they are desperately trying to get out of the demographic recession that they've been in for 25 years. What is a demographic recession? It's where you're having too few children to maintain the current population to too few young people coming into the workforce, buying homes and cars, starting new businesses, 
Japan has been in recession since 1990, and it's a result of the fact that they're only averaging 1.3 children per couple, which is a recipe for uh, demographic disaster. And in fact, aren't we even seeing the same effect in many parts of Europe, that in fact there are some countries like France, for example, that are, that are quote-unquote maintaining only because of new immigration? Well, absolutely. Europe, really, uh, the European countries, uh, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, uh, those peoples better decide who they want to give their countries to because they obviously don't want it enough to populate it themselves. They're having the Germans, the French, the Italians, the Spaniards are having about 1.2, 1.3 children per couple. Again, like Japan, declining in population. Were it not for immigration, um, and they have to have immigration. Of course, most of the immigration into those European countries comes from North Africa and the Middle East and brings with it other problems. The one big buzzword that seems to tie into most of these arguments, whether it's an argument to try and reduce the population or address um, CO emissions, things of this sort, is the notion of sustainability, meaning uh, to what degree is the planet capable of not only meeting the needs of those of us that call this place home, but but also as we add more people to the population, <laughs> pardon me, um, how much of an impact will each of those individuals have on the carbon footprint, saying things of this sort? This this notion of sustainability, just how realistic is it to the argument? Well, you know, uh, sustainability is really, in, in eco-speak, a synonym for limits. And so when we talk about sustainable growth, when we hear the phrase sustainable growth, what they're really talking about is limiting economic growth. When we hear the word phrase sustainable population, we're really talking about limiting population or population control. Because the idea that you can dictate how many people can live on the planet at a certain standard of living is complete nonsense. I mean, look, I'm an anthropologist. Uh, I was the first American social scientist in China back in 1979 when the Chinese were still relatively poor and when the world, led by Paul Ehrlich, led by the, 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 uh, the radical environmental movement, said China has too many people. If it is to develop, it must embark upon a one-child policy. Well, that's what they've done. They've killed off 400 million people over the last 35 years. And now they're facing an economic crisis because they have a nationwide labor shortage. They have the fastest aging population in human history. They're talking now about abandoning the one-child policy. I don't think they're going to do it in total. They'll go to a two-child policy. But they have set in train so many problems uh, for themselves over the long run, that China's long-term economic prospects are now less rosy than India's, because the Indians are still having a little over two children, whereas the Chinese are averaging slightly over one. They've compromised their future. They've compromised economic development. However well they're doing now, they're going to fall into a demographic trap that they laid for themselves 35 years ago, and there appears now to be no way out. What are the counter-argument to your points that says we need, Stephen, to keep in mind the planet's ability or inability in this argument to provide enough food, enough portable water, enough of the basic resources necessary to sustain human life? And if we continue at this pace, the fact of the matter is we can't plant gardens fast enough or farm fast enough and be able to produce enough water to meet the needs of a growing population. Okay, well, here, here, here are two arguments. 
that's uniquely encapsulated. One is that we're running out of food, and one is that we're running out of water. And the argument we're running out of food was rebutted uh, about 10 years ago by the Food and Agricultural Organization, which is part of the U.N. system, by the way. So these are not uh, these are not conservative people making these predictions. The Food and Agricultural Organization said that with current ag- agricultural technology, we could now feed between 12 to 14 billion people on the planet. Well, you know and I know there are only a few more than 7 billion people on the planet now. Uh, people should also know that the world's population is never going to double again. We're never going to get to 12 billion or 14 billion. So the food problem, yeah, we have a problem distributing food to some poor people in poor countries. There's still hunger in the world. I don't deny that. But there is no global food shortage, nor will there ever be. And as far as water is concerned, my goodness, 70% of the planet's surface is covered by water to an average depth of 6,000 feet. So there's plenty of H2O. Now, we may have to desalinate it. Uh, and they do that quite well in some Middle Eastern countries. We may have to conserve it. We may have to build more dams and, and build canals. Uh, but we don't have a global water shortage either. And as far as the carrying capacity of the world, you know, you get, if you tell me what level of technology we're talking about, I can tell you what the carrying capacity of the world is. I can tell you that as an anthropologist, when we were back in the days of hunting and gathering, when we had no settled agriculture and we were basically dependent on what we could stalk and kill hunting and what we could find grubbing on the earth by, by, uh, by gathering, we could survive in the temperate zone at about a population density of two people per square mile. With settled agriculture, we raised that to 100 people per square mile, then to 1,000 with irrigation uh, in some of the best uh, irrigated uh, rice paddy areas in South China, where I lived for a couple of years. You had two and 3,000 people per square, per square mile. Uh, but then we get to industry. We get to industrialization. And then we have the communications, uh, the Internet revolution. And with each advance in technology, we're able to support more people. Now, if there were no more technological advances, if no more scientific advances were made, if no more Nobel Prizes in, in in physics and chemistry were, were handed out, and and our technology technological advance stopped. Then that would put a limit uh, eventually on the number of people that we could have on the planet. But I don't see any reason to believe that man is going to begin checking his intelligences at the door and not make any more advances in technology. Well, in fact, ironically, about 100 years ago, there was a bill that was created that was under discussion and I forget whether it was the Senate or the House, but one one side of of Congress or the other, uh, that essentially was a proposal to shut down the U.S. Patent Office, arguing that post the invention of the light bulb, the Victrola, things of this sort, that everything that possibly could be invented had been had been invented, and therefore there was no need for a U.S. patent office. I, I wonder what Steve Jobs would have thought if he'd <laughs> called Washington and said, "Sorry, that iPhone, iPad uh, thing you're thinking of, now nah, we don't need that." <laughs> you can't have that idea because we've decided you won't. Um, yeah, that's the only way to stop human progress is by having the government intervene and force people to stop being creative, to force them to stop using their intelligence to solve problems. Uh, that that we cause sometimes by our numbers. I mean, nobody would have liked to have lived in a city in the Middle Ages because they didn't have, uh, you know, running water. They didn't have a way of disposing of their sewage. But we invented ways to solve that problem, which was caused by large numbers of human beings living in a small area. And I'm convinced that any problem that's caused by our numbers can be solved by those same people. 
um, using you putting their intelligence to work. Uh, who would have thought that uh, 50 years ago that we would be taking sand from the beach and taking the silica from it, and making it in silicon chips that make it possible for us to talk to uh, you know on, on 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 the phone across the world, on the internet around the world in, in fractions of a second. Um, again, a resource we didn't know existed 50 years ago is now making it very easy for us to communicate cheaply around the world. And, I mean, more people in Africa have cell phones now than have running water. Isn't that amazing? Let's pause on that point. Stephen Mosher is with us today, president of Population Research Institute. We're trying to sort of figure through many of these arguments, arguments, quite frankly, that are taught as absolute fact in public schools today, as I suggested just a few moments ago. The big question is, as we, yes, I have an understanding about uh, caring for the environment and nothing here in today's conversation should be suggestive of the idea that we need to uh, uh, not care for the environment or not live and act responsibly in in caring and and providing the stewardship over our planet. But that said, how much of these proposals related to caring for the environment or dealing with the quote-unquote population really get down to a core issue of not sustainability, but rather the attempt by some elite to manage and control the lives of others. We'll riddle that one as well as our conversation with Stephen Mosher from Population Research Institute continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation today with Stephen Mosher, president of Population Research Institute. By the way, more information available on the web at pop.org. That's pop.org. What of this push that we're seeing in many countries toward um, not just telling the folks we're going to limit to one child, as they do in China, but actually engaging in aggressive abortion campaigns overseas. I, I quoted from the general chair of, uh, secretary general, rather, of the U.N., Ban Ki-moon, who made a remark concerning, quote, prioritizing to provide abortions to women in conflict-affected countries. What's that all about? Well, that's all about the idea that, uh, that uh, if you have too many people, uh, you necessarily will have wars and civil unrest. And, of course, the one doesn't follow from the other at all. If, if you have uh, a robust population uh, with large, intact families, uh, you're not going to have social unrest. You're going to have kids who are well socialized and, and who make a positive contribution to society. Um, the, the idea that all conflict is ultimately related to population growth is, uh, is simply simply not true. But what it does do... Craig, is it skews our whole foreign aid in the direction of promoting abortion, promoting population control, promoting offensive, abusive sterilization campaigns uh, around the world, In not just in China. You know, we were, we were one of the ones, uh, countries in 1979 uh, that encouraged China to embark upon a one-child policy. We funded the organization, the UN Population Fund, the Population Control Agency of the UN, that gave $50 million to China's one-child policy, and is still supporting that policy today. I was involved in the struggle to get funding cut off to the UN Funding and Population Fund because I thought that American taxpayers really would not want to be involved in a program where women were arrested for the crime of being pregnant, where they were taken by force 
to surgical centers where they were given abortions, sometimes coercively, and then subsequently sterilized so they wouldn't be back the year in, in years following with another, carrying another illegal child. I was an eyewitness to forced abortion and forced sterilization in China. But that was driven in part by this idea that the world is overpopulated, China's overpopulated. We're still spending in countries like uh, Kenya today. I, I heard uh, about the campaign to um, reduce the number of children dying from uh, from parasites in in places in Africa, for example, and in Asia. And the fact is, we're not doing as a, as a people very much to combat tropical diseases, malaria, typhus, typhoid, and the rest. We spend a lot of our foreign aid budget trying to reduce the number of children born in poor countries instead of trying to help those children who are born survive uh, deadly diseases that are easily curable. I mean, we spend seventy dollars uh, in Kenya for uh, on population control programs and promoting abortion and sterilization for every one dollar we spend on public health. So there's a huge disproportion, a huge disparity there. Uh, we're not listening to the better angels of our nature. We're we're just responding to the idea that uh, that that children are just little. Um, little carbon emitters, and the fewer we have, the better off we will all be. Well, there's also a major push to try and sort of um, re-educate, I'll use that term because it's popular within communist circles back in the day, um, to re-educate people on this issue. I mean, number one, the United Nations has been promoting the idea for many decades that abortion, in fact, is should be considered a universal right. And as the United States, along with others, have engaged in these uh, aggressive abortion campaigns overseas, you better believe that organizations like Planned Parenthood see this as an opportunity to make some money. Uh, I mean, they're, you know, as much as they try to paint this in terms of, you know, providing freedom and liberty and uh, uh, human rights and all of that. And uh, once again, the sustainability word creeps into the conversation. The, the reality is there, the, as much as we have the influence of a culture of death in our own society, post Roe versus Wade, that this is this is spreading all around the around the planet. Yeah, we're we're trying to export the lifestyle of of Hollywood and Manhattan to relatively innocent, untouched corners of the world. I think back to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who spent twenty uh, some million dollars in Kenya trying to influence the government to in, into legalizing abortion, which it did, which it probably wouldn't have without this this pressure from the United States, without this funding from the United States. That's a violation of democratic principles because the Kenyan people are overwhelmingly pro-life. But we undermine democracy in pursuit of this, uh, this idea that abortion is a human right. And, you know, the worst thing I've heard recently, Craig, comes from a bishop, Catholic bishop in northern Nigeria, from the Diocese of Oyo in northern Nigeria, which is close to the Boko Haram terrorist-controlled uh, territory. And he recently said, we're trying to get help from the United States to fight terrorism. But the State Department tells us that the U.S. will not give us help to fight Boko Haram unless we legalize abortion uh, and, legalize, uh, and, and, uh, and, and legalize other things that we find morally offensive. So think about that. What is the priority of the, the, the current administration if it refuses to fight terrorism unless a country legalizes abortion? 
Well, it, it definitely shows, again, as you point out, a big part of the agenda that goes beyond just this notion of trying to do the right thing for the country or the right thing for the planet. Uh, it, it comes back to this issue of attempting, I think, in some ways to, to not only um, justify our own behavior, but then to influence and control the behavior of others. Yeah, it's a it's a kind of ideological colonialism, you know, and it's a it's a sad thing that the, the same countries, many of the same countries, that that sixty years ago, seventy years ago, had colonial empires in Africa, are now going back. Uh, Great Britain, France, and of course our own country, which didn't have that empire, but is now a big player in Africa and poor Asian countries, and saying to those countries that. Uh, that you're having too many children, you have to restructure your family, you have to educate your your people to accept abortion, uh, to reduce the number of children being born. I mean, what not that an intrusive violation of the right of peoples to self-determination, to determine for themselves the, the number and spacing of their children, to determine for themselves what their laws governing families and, and children will be? I mean, one of our foreign policy goals is supposed to be promoting democracy. And yet at the same time, we're out promoting these radical anti-people notions that work against democracy, that undermine democratically passed laws in countries in Latin America, for example, and in countries like Africa. We're going to pause. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Stephen Mosher, my guest, president of Population Research Institute. When we come back, we'll talk more about the control issue and what is a very blatant inconsistency when it comes to application of issues such as saving the planet from greenhouse gases. As Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Here is a big part of the... Well, the kind word is inconsistency. The more accurate word is hypocrisy of so much of the green movement that it that it seems to to separate the leaders from the followers. And ironically, it very much mirrors uh, many of the ideals of communism. And at the end of the day, communism is a theory that essentially has a small group at the top with centralized power over everybody else. They're suggesting in many ways, I think, the same thing when it comes to going green. Witness, for example, one of the biggest hypocrites in this arena, none other than Al Gore himself, who at the same time that he was busy producing a movie for which he won an award, and I still haven't figured that part out yet, um, and uh, promoting the, the inconvenient truth, it turned out that the bigger more inconvenient truth for Al Gore it was that while he's telling you to reduce the size of your footprint or risk the annihilation of our planet, Al Gore had a mansion in Tennessee whose electric and heating bill was $30,000 a year. That is 20 times the national average. Now, albeit his home is also four times larger than the average house size. But regardless, it shows the degree to which many of those that promote this green notion are really at the core hypocrites, either making money off of all of this, as Al Gore has to some obscene sums, or simply trying to centralize power. What of that? Is the new green, the old red, are there vestiges of the ideals of communism lurking behind a lot of this? It, it sure, uh, to me, Stephen Mosher, seems to be the case. I, I think that the, 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 same, the same idea of a, of a, of a tiny elite, uh, cognoscenti, people who know better than we do 
how our lives should be run and what we should eat and what we should drink and how much energy we should use and what kind of homes we live in and what kind of cars we drive and how many square feet we should be allotted in living space, for example, and whether or not we should be allowed to travel um, wherever we want, whenever we want, whether or not we should have to wear a kind of like like a energy equivalent of a Fitbit, a little watch that would monitor our energy usage and report us to government authorities if we use too much. Uh, you know, that may sound like the stuff of uh, a science fiction horror novel, but... Uh, just today I heard the Environmental Protection Agency is getting prepared to monitor how many showers and, and how long our showers are when we travel uh, and stay in hotels, that the hotels will have little monitoring devices to report to government authorities, a central data collection station, about how much water we're, we're using when we're on the road. So uh, the sort of idea that... Uh, that, that a small group of people who are who are highly educated can better run our lives than we ourselves is the classic the classic totalitarian mistake uh, and it's a mistake because no government bureaucrat however well educated can ever make the right decisions for you and your family or me and my family because they simply don't know our individual circumstances and the effort to do it to take control of our families and to take control of our lives would result in a massive, massive loss of freedom. Why does it seem as if, particularly post the uh, the Big Earth Summit down in Rio in the early 90s, why does it seem as if there is a pretty inconsistent application of, of much of this movement in enforcing compliance with green standards, lower emissions, things of that sort? And I ask that question because here, California, as you know, you lived here, Stephen, we have air resources boards. They tell us at wintertime, don't burn a fire in your fireplace because it's mm-hmm. going to destroy the air. We have summer gas versus winter gas. We have all of these restrictions and controls. They've even promoted the notion that both statewide as well as nationally that we ought to start paying taxes based on the amount of mileage that we drive every year. I mean, on and on the list, the draconian list of controls goes. And yet, as much as I see this going on in a country like the United States where we do make efforts, there are emission standards, and we do try to, to I think, in some reasonable ways uh, control uh, pollution emissions from industry, from private industry individuals, et cetera, et cetera. And yet I have traveled with some frequency to countries like India, like China on multiple occasions, the former Soviet Union on multiple occasions. And to this day, they continue to be some of the most outlandish, grossest polluters I have ever seen. People forget that in the 2007 Olympics, Beijing actually decreed a moratorium and shut down all heavy, medium, and light-duty manufacturing in about a 200-mile radius around the capital of Beijing where the games were being held for 20 days prior to the Olympics and 10 days after the Olympics closed, I guess figuring some folks might stay and linger as tourists and things of that sort, to simply give the impression that things were better. Of course, once all the visiting athletes and the tourists went back home, China went back to its gross polluting. Why does this debate, particularly on the global scene, never come back and say, wait a minute, the United States is being asked to pony up. We're being asked to reduce. We have a population that's less than a third the size of China, a third the size of India, under certainly if not competitive with Russia, and yet it doesn't seem as if they have to play by the rules, only us. Why is that? Well, one word, money. We have all the money because this is not, this is not 
just about cleaning up the air and cleaning up the planet. You can do that with local laws that are enforced uh, reasonably on polluters, which, of course, we all think ought to be done. The trouble in Russia and the trouble in China and to some extent in India is that if you own a polluting factory, it's cheaper for you to pay off a local official to turn the blind eye, blind eye to your pollution than to install the scrubbing equipment on your smokestacks that would prevent it from reaching the atmosphere. And so that's what you do in China. If you have a factory that, that uh, is, is giving off uh, hydrogen sulfide or something uh, that irritates people that potentially is carcin uh, carcinogen, uh, you simply uh, go pay off the local official uh, responsible and he will look the other way. Uh, in the United States, that kind of bribery gets you arrested and thrown in jail. So there isn't the kind of free press in Russia and, and China and to some extent in India that allows ordinary people to band together and protest and take their pick, petition the government for redress. Uh, there isn't a Bill of Rights in China, for example, and if, and if the local villagers go unmasked to protest a polluting factory, they will often be met with deadly force uh, from riot police who are, of course, working for the government, not for the people, and who are there under orders from the local police chief, who too has been paid off to protect the factory, even as it is polluting against the interests of the villagers, even though they are dying from lung cancer. So that's the kind of corruption you find elsewhere in the world. But the United States and Europe have the money. And this is, at base, a giant wealth transfer scheme because there's nothing that the oligarchs in poor countries, the dictators, the tyrants in Africa, Asia, Latin America would like better than to have the United States and Europe in some sort of spasm of guilt transfer a trillion dollars into their Swiss bank accounts on the on the uh, grounds that yes we uh, we polluted and now we're we're paying back the people of the world for the pollution we caused. Uh, that's what this is about. It's about transferring wealth from countries that produce goods and services to countries that don't produce very much in the way of goods and services and are therefore poor. Hmm. Redistribution of wealth. Why does that sound like a basic concept that was promoted by Marxism and Leninism? It does have a very familiar ring to it for those of us who grew up in the in the last uh, in the last century. I lived in Asia for ten years. I lived in China for several years, and China has uh, the worst pollution in the world, I believe, by far. You know, they they did have to shut down the factories before the Beijing Olympics because they wanted they wanted the people who visiting Beijing to be able to see the sun. Well, <laughs> this is true. The time, most of the time when you go to Beijing these days, unless it's a windy winter day, you cannot see the sun because the sun is obscured by black clouds. And people wear those gauze masks over their face, not because they have a cold, but because they're trying to prevent at least some of that particulate matter, that soot uh, and the sulfur and, and the other uh, minerals from entering their lungs. And, and, and making them sick. Stephen, we sure appreciate the education tonight. I would imagine there are a lot of resources available for listeners on your website. We've been working on these issues for 20 years. The website is pop.org, P-O-P.org. 
Well, great. Well, I, again, appreciate your time. Good to have a former Californians on the program and uh, keep up the good work. Stephen Mosher, president of the Population Research Institute. Details again on the web at POP. That's P-O-P dot O-R-G. POP dot O-R-G. And our thanks to Stephen Mosher for being with us tonight. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking about Slow Church today, not just the book, but the entire notion. This is the the polar opposite of this uh, fast approach that we've taken to rapid growth that certainly does a lot in terms of of sort of the quick um, flash in the pan, uh, brilliant moment uh, of success. But then, of course, leaves many questions pertaining to the sustainability of not just one's faith, but frankly, of the community, of the body of believers. And as we're learning from our guest today, co-author Chris Smith, um, quite frankly, this, this rapid fast, sort of the, uh, the franchise approach to Christianity, doesn't do a lot in terms of um, spiritual depth of individuals, let alone the sustainability of the church. And maybe therein lies the problem that we're learning that the, the rapid results today are in fact at the expense of long-term sustainability. Yes, definitely, Craig. I mean, we see that, like you were saying earlier, that church plants uh, tend to have a lifespan of maybe a couple years. And also, I think part of the issue, questions of sustainability, um, one of the questions that doesn't get looked at so much uh, is is the ways in which uh, churches move uh, from one neighborhood uh, to another, um, and what the what the impact might be of that sort of. Uh, transition uh, on the neighborhoods um, that are left. I mean, I live in an urban neighborhood here in Indianapolis, and we've kind of seen the effects, the sort of vacuum that's left uh, when a church uh, or any other institution of business, uh, but but especially in this case in churches, um, when they move out of a neighborhood. Um, And and it, it can be it can be uh, pretty powerful, and it's something that churches don't think about a lot about uh, what what has happened uh, in the places that they leave behind. Mm. So that loss of commitment to a neighborhood, and oftentimes there's a disaster left behind because then what might have been uh, the only beacon of hope in a particular community, and this certainly has been very true in a lot of inner cities, um, sure. it completely uh, collapses, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. It was, it's interesting. Our church, the church I'm part of, Anglo Christian Church here in, Indiana, in the near, urban near east side of Indianapolis, uh, we're 118 years old, uh, but we've basically been in the same place uh, for for all of that history. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, at kind of a low point in the size of our congregation, the history of our congregation, uh, we ha- were faced with the decision, do we stay in this neighborhood or do we move out uh, to the suburbs where a lot of our members are? And the leaders of the church decided at that point that it was very important for us to stay. And basically for the last 25 years or so since that decision, we've been on a journey of trying to, to understand what it means for us to be a church in this place since we made a very intentional decision to stay here. A lot of times churches will move because they feel overwhelmed by many of the problems that are facing a neighborhood and, quite frankly, maybe feel ill-equipped to be able to ascertain what those problems are and to sure. best address them. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of what we've seen in the recent past 
passing of Robin Williams, who is, um, because of his connection to the San Francisco Bay Area, has been sure. quite a, an ongoing topic here of the last couple of weeks. Uh, some folks might have seen um, comments made uh, the other night by David Letterman, um, who um, knew Robin early on in his career. And uh, Mr. Williams had been a guest on the Letterman show apparently about 50 times down through uh, the, the years. And at the end of his very emotional, moving tribute to him, uh, had made a remark about, well, if he only knew about how much pain Robin was in. And it dawns on me that we in the church maybe are guilty often of the same thing, that we are too busy and moving too fast to notice when others around us are hurting, the very ones that God would call upon us to bring healing to or hope to or his gospel to. And maybe, you know, what uh, what was remarked by David Letterman last night regarding Robin Williams is indicative of a place where a lot of us in the church are at today. We're just moving too fast to notice those around us that are really hurting. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I think you're, you're definitely hitting on something there, Craig. Um, that I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating to us is that, I mean, you just look at, you talk, we talked about earlier, a little bit earlier about the franchising uh, aspect of it, and you look at a McDonald's or you look at a Starbucks or a Home Depot or whatever, and those are those sorts of institutions look pretty much the same whether you're in San Francisco or San Antonio or wherever else. Um, and I think that a lot of times uh, churches can be that way. They can look and feel pretty much the same wherever wherever they are. And, they, and churches have kind of become almost um, uh, unattentive to... Uh, to the places uh, where they exist. Um, and again, that's part of the, the sort of fragmentation. Uh, churches have come to see themselves as kind of par- part of spiritual life, uh, not necessarily engaged in the life of the communities in which they exist. Um, and I, I think that that's, I think it's in that sort of engagement with the communities where we exist, where the, the wisdom of the gospel is, uh, and the, the call to to be peacemakers and all those other sorts of things that, that we're called to in Christ. Uh, those, that's where that witness is borne out uh, in, in engagement with, with our neighbors. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that, that we, there are many ways that we've become unaware of the the pain and suffering around us. And, you know, even closer to home, I mean, again, that that rush means that there's a risk of well-being to family and our own mental health, our own spiritual well-being, because we're not taking the time uh, to go deep enough because uh, we're just not programmed that way. Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that I don't... We don't want to overstep here, but but it's interesting to me that there's a correlation uh, between our continuing to move faster and faster, and and the rise in uh, mental illness, for instance. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not saying necessarily that they're connected, but it's interesting that uh, that they seem to uh, follow very similar uh, curves. Um, is a lot of this also tied into not just a desire to do things faster and more instantaneous, but also uh, coupled with this indicative of a, a lack of maturity that is uh, m- maybe as a as a watchword, uh, tremendously impatient and a culture where on an increasing basis we wish to avoid not only work but any pain. I mean, it used to be, you know, a, a good hard day's worth of labor mm-hmm. where you came home with tired muscles and, and complaints 
completely beat, that was you had a sense of satisfaction and reward about that. And today, it's almost as if that is shunned. And so, if we're not willing to to exercise our physical muscles and experience a little bit of you know stretching pain in the experience, um, I wonder if that's indicative of of the same thing when it comes to not willing being willing to spirit to exercise our spiritual muscles that we're afraid of avoiding pain in any aspect of life. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's one of the things that we talk about in the book. That I mean, the way of Jesus uh, is the the way of compassion. I mean, just the incarnation itself of Jesus coming to Earth uh, was an act of compassion. Jesus entered into all the pain and suffering and the joys, of course, too. But but the pain and suffering of the human experience, and that's what we're called to do. Uh, with one another in our church congregations and with our neighbors. And I think that what we're seeing, I talked a little bit before about kind of the history of industrialization and how we've become more and more uh, impatient and have more greater and greater expectations for speed. But one of the other effects of it is, like you were saying, that it conditions us to to want to avoid work and suffering. We look at the rise of the in the mid 20th century, the rise of the quote unquote labor saving device, uh, and that's a wonder. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that we should not use any sort of electrical gadget or whatever, uh, but but we do need to be aware of what what the cost of that is and what if we're saving labor. To what end are we saving labor? Um, and and the effect of that, I believe, is exactly what you were describing. That we it, we we are having greater and greater difficulty entering into the the pains and sufferings of others because we've been conditioned to avoid pain and suffering at all costs. And of course, the irony is that pain and suffering also translates into notions of persecution. Um, and you know, somehow the notion that we, as the Church in America, are uniquely um, given a pass on the idea of pain and suffering or persecution, when the Scripture, of course, doesn't say that at all. And um, there is a dynamic that speaks quite heavily to uh, that lack of being willing to to suffer for His name's sake, as Chris, Scripture calls us to, indicative too of this notion of kind of being there. Uh, the church that's what's the old saying 10 miles wide and an inch deep right no no absolutely absolutely i mean again i don't think that we should necessarily seek out persecution but i mean i think that there are ways that our desires for comfort uh uh, kind of compromises our willingness to to speak the truth in, in difficult situations, uh, whether that's in the public square or in our congregations um, and i think that has that has uh, ramifications our conversation today with Chris Smith. He is co-author of a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. If you are someone who is a uh, student of uh, everything that is fast and rapid and you wish to overemphasize a, a quality, quantity rather over quality, this is probably not a book for you. If, on the other hand, you're somebody who would rather not go quicker in your relationship with God but go deeper, then this indeed can be a book that can be a tremendous eye opener, not only for your own relationship with Christ, but at the family level and at the community level. The book again, Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus, newly published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area, not in the rapid church growth section, though, I might add. (laughs) And of course, on Amazon.com. And our thanks to co-author Chris Smith for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.